This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts and welcome to the special birthday episode. It is Darren's birthday as this episode has come out. So happy birthday, Darren. Thank you Wish him much. well in the comments. <laughs> Cheers. Many happy returns to me. And because it is my birthday, then it falls to me to pick both movies this episode. And I've leaned into my horror past so we're going to be covering the movies of two particularly well-loved horror icons later on we're going to be looking at elvira mistress of the dark but on the other side of this we're going to be looking at the new should release jacob's wife starring mine and quite a lot of other people's favorite barbara crampton And for the first of our movies, as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, we're going to be covering the recent Shudder release, Jacob's Wife, which is directed by Travis Stevens and stars Larry Fessenden and, of course, Barbara Crampton. So what is Jacob's Wife all about? I'm going to tell you, but not in my own words. Now, the shark movies may be over and done with, but Nick Reganus lives on. Nick Reganus has written a synopsis for Jacob's Wife, and I couldn't be more happy about this. So let me get into it and tell you what this movie is all about in the words of Nick. Spending her days on cooking, housekeeping and gardening, Anne, the dutiful, obedient and supportive suburban wife to local pastor and pillar of the community, Jacob Fedder, realises that decades of passionless marriage have taken their toll on their relationship. Trapped in an uneventful existence, suddenly Anne finds her world turned upside down when her old flame Tom Lowe drives into town, eager to pick up where they left off. Now, against the backdrop of unaccountable disappearances and an inexplicable rat infestation, temptation takes over and Anne starts to build self-confidence, a whole new attitude and her dream wardrobe. What is wrong with Jacob's wife? What is wrong with Jacob's wife indeed? Well... We can probably give you a bit of a spoiler on this because what is wrong with her, I mean, if you can say it's wrong with her, is that um, Jacob's wife has been bitten by a vampire and is coming to terms with a newfound confidence and, uh, well, a newfound strength and her unwillingness to put up with any of Jacob's shit anymore, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. And newfound bloodlust, of course, because yeah. it wouldn't be a vampire movie without it. So I really enjoyed this movie. It's a bit of a slow burn to start with. It takes its time to get the pace going, but it's still very intriguing with that said. So um, there's some good character development at the beginning. We get a sense of Jacob's wife and her um, like mundane existence, how she's kind of just like going with the flow, but you know she's kind of seeking something more out of life. And then 
of course she meets up with her ex-boyfriend and there's that kind of temptation there of lost love but she's still very much loyal to Jacob and feels really guilty when when they share a kiss and then all hell breaks loose at that point when um, they're attacked by rats and then we see basically a mysterious figure transform Anne into a vampire and then the movie really picks up from there Um, it's very much character driven with her how you've got the usual tropes where she goes into the store and she's really like drawn to the the meat and the blood and everything and yeah she goes from a bit bit of a transformation and then um go back to nick's comment about her wardrobe like she has this really amazing red dress like she just goes full-on vamp um in this and then Jacob figures out that there's something not quite right with her and it's like whether is he going to support his wife and get on board with her new self-image or um, will um, he basically become, I suppose, uh, vampire food? Yeah, and it kind of plays with that throughout the movie because Jacob is very upstanding in terms of his religion and his morals and it doesn't sit well with him initially. But there's this kind of feeling that maybe he's going to have to deal with it in a way that he hasn't been able to deal with it before. He's very much the man of the house at the start, but then he's confronted with the fact that his wife is becoming more powerful than he's ever going to be. And it's how he's going to deal with that as well. I think Larry Fessenden is great in this. There is an unwritten rule about indie horror movies that every indie horror movie has got to have Larry Fessenden in it at some point. Now, usually he turns up for a couple of minutes and then disappears or he's killed off. But he's in this movie quite a lot and he's really good in it. He essays the part really well. He is a bit of an... I mean, he's a bit of a prig, really, at the start. He's a bit of a plank. He's, you know, he's very intractable in terms of his moral standpoint but it's the transformation of Anne that makes him rethink some of his stance on how he's been treating her basically over the last few decades having said that it's really Barbara Crampton's movie she's actually given a part that gets her to go through a massive character arc and it's clear that she's having a really good time in this movie because she gets to vamp it up sorry about the pun and (laughs) you also get a nod to the classic vampire tropes as well. The master of the vampires has got very much a classic sort of Nosferatu quality about her. And the one thing that I think people are going to have problems with in this movie is the tonal shifts in it, because it's very serious at points. And then it almost descends into farce about halfway through. And whereas I had no problem with this and I quite enjoyed the humour in it as Jacob and Anne tried to deal with the situation. And there's a great point where they're trying to find stakes to take the vampires on. And it is just pure comedy. At that point, all seriousness goes out of the window for a few minutes. And I imagine that not everybody is going to be on board with how much this shifts between being quite gory and quite scary in places and then it's just ridiculous i had no problem personally but if people come back and say yeah it didn't really know what it wanted to be i can get that but like with travis Stevens's previous uh, movie girl on the third floor that was quite a serious movie but had some very very dark comedy in it i think overall this is a better movie but if you've seen that you kind of can see the progression 
between that movie and this one because the tonal elements of it are not that far apart, even though Jacob's Wife has much more broad comedy than Girl on the Third Floor. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So we saw Girl on the Third Floor at Sally Lloyd Screams, I believe, a couple of years ago. And uh, we have reviewed that. That is on our YouTube channel. So if you just search Hades Horror Reviews, it will come up on there in Celluloid Screams 2019 if you want to hear our, our thoughts on that movie. Yeah, this is definitely a bit more of a confident effort, I think. Um, as you say, you can see his work has progressed really well. Yeah, the tonal shifts, I, I didn't mind it at all. Like, it was definitely totally uneven. And I can see, like, from the general consensus on IMDb with reviews that um, a lot of people weren't on board with it. But it didn't bother me because it's like at the beginning, it's like this domestic drama that meets the extraordinary. And then it goes kind of into like a bit of a gore fest. There's some really creepy moments as well. I thought at the beginning when you kind of see the vampire stood outside her house, that moment was actually quite unsettling. And I really enjoyed that part. But the, yeah, the vampire, the master, is played by Bonnie Ahrens, who is best known for being in the Conjuring fr franchise as the nun. And she has a really exceptional screen presence. I was thinking, as you say, well, Nosferatu, but also Salem's Lot as well. Mm. The movie kind of reminded me of that, because obviously you've got that small town being inhabited by vampires. So it had that those elements um, for me as well. So yeah, I, I really like it. And I think if you can just kind of go with it, you're going to enjoy this movie. It's, you know, you don't need to take it like overly seriously. It is simply just, you know, made, made by people who enjoy horror. Barbara Crampton was captivated by the script and she tried to get it um, made for a few years, I believe. So um, she had a lot of um, clout when it came to getting this movie made and get it through producers and stuff. So as I say, like if you enjoy your horror, you like certain actors in this, like Barbara Crampton and, and um, the actress from The Conjuring as well. If you, you know, if you're like into those things, then definitely give this a go because it is a very good movie. Yeah. You've also got Robert Rusler in as well as the ex-boyfriend, Tom, who has got experience of dealing with uh, the supernatural because he was in the movie Vamp with Grace Jones. So it's got nods to other movies in the vampire canon. So it's clever casting and Robert Russell's really good in this movie. I mean, he's he's aged quite well and he's still got that same cheeky screen presence that he had way back in Vamp. So I think that's quite that's quite neat casting on the part of the filmmakers. It is bloody. It's quite astonishingly bloody in places. So anybody who's thinking that it's just going to be a bit of a knockabout horror comedy, there are some quite disturbing sequences in it. I mean, somebody gets their head pretty much ripped off at one point, which is, I mean, it's spectacular. But I think if anybody's going for a for the horror comedy vibe, they might be slightly disturbed at how gory it gets on occasion. But I'm guessing that if Barbara Crampton fans are stopping by to see this movie, then they're going to pretty much know what to expect. There's going to be gore and there's going to be torrents of blood. And it's just nice to see a movie where Barbara Crampton is actually front and centre and is the focus of everything because quite often she's there to provide some impact to a movie and she may not have the biggest role but she's there on the strength of her name and her performance. This movie, she's pretty much on screen for, well, 95% of the time, and she really does dominate the movie. It's a movie that actually showcases her talents in a way that lots of other horror stuff doesn't, really. They give her 
quite a lot to do in this movie and she does rise to the challenge. Now, I'm saying this because I'm a little biased, obviously. I am a massive fan of Barbara Crampton. But I think even if I hadn't seen tons of her movies, I think if I came into this call, I'd be pretty impressed at what she does in this film. Yeah, she is complete top billing in this. So she's not a side character. She's not just the wife. There's more to her than that. And um, she really gets to sink her teeth into this role. So pardon pardon there. (laughs) But yeah, it's very much, I would say, like, if you like things like maybe Santa Clarita Diet, for example, it's got elements of that in there. And as I say, it's like Salem's Lot, just, you know, classic vampire um, movies. So it's, yeah, it's a really good, good film, worth a watch. So on IMDb currently, it's at 5.2 out of 10. I would rate it slightly higher than that, maybe about a 7. Obviously, it didn't blow my mind in any way. But as you say, if you enjoy horror movies for what they are, like, you're going to have a good time with this. Yeah, how dare you, IMDb? 5.2. I mean, that is harsh. I can understand. Um, uh, I can kind of understand why, because, you know, as we've said about the tonal shifts, you know, there there are elements in this movie I think people are going to find hard to latch onto because of the way that it doesn't stick to one particular aspect of horror, which for me is quite fun. I don't, I didn't want it to be as dark as it it gets all the way through the movie. I also didn't want to be as farcical as it gets throughout the movie. So I thought it did a really good balancing act and it's got some quite nice asides with some of the supporting characters, like the, the cop who's investigating anything. He's just so droll. Every time he comes across something that most movie policemen would, you know, get panicky about it or just go off into all sorts of wild theorising, this guy seems to just take it in his stride and it's just like, okay, you know, we've got this, but, you know, we've got these we've got these dead bodies and we've got this infestation of rats. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, there must be kind of, you know, a fairly logical explanation for all of this. And the, and the more wacky the plot gets, the, the less phased this guy seems to be, which I thought was great. Without him actually going for specifically comedic lines or expressions, he comes across as very, very deadpan and it makes it even more hilarious every time he's on screen. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of that play on that like dumb cop in horror movies where most of the time they um, usually don't listen and then uh, kind of meet their maker. But it's great how they've played with certain tropes in this film. According to Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is currently on 62%, which is okay. It's, it's, I think that's a fair score. Um, quite surprising, really, that they've given it a better rating really than imdb but as i say if you enjoy vampire movies horror movies generally if you enjoy a bit of barbara crampton or any of the cast in this film it's completely worth a watch it's on shudder if you've got your shudder subscription you know you've got nothing to lose by giving this a go absolutely yeah totally agree with all of that in the pantheon of barbara crampton movies it's probably not right at the top of them in terms of the movie but it's fairly well up there I'm going to say that if you think it's going to be on the level of something like Reanimator, I'd dial your expectations back a little bit because very few films are as good as Reanimator is. But this is pretty good. I'm, I really enjoyed Jacob's Wife and I kind of want to know what Travis Stevens does next. Okay, the second film 
we're going to be covering in this episode if the technical gremlins will allow us to because we've been having untold hitches trying to record this anyway let's see how far we get through this it's 1988's Elvira Mistress of the Dark directed by James Signorelli and who is going to provide the synopsis for Elvira Mistress of the Dark you ask well I'm sorry to disappoint it's not our good friend Nick Reganis however the person that has written this uh, synopsis um, Darren can give you a little bit of background about Yes, it's one Claudio Carvalho from Rio de Janeiro. Now, Claudio provided quite a lot of the synopses for the movies that were featured on the Mitch's Pitches segment of the Strong Language and Violent Scenes podcast. So, Claudio is known to listeners of that podcast, and he has provided a fairly detailed storyline for Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, which goes as follows. When a chauvinist millionaire buys a television network where the sexy Elvira is the horror hostess of a late show, she quits her job with the intention of producing her own show in Las Vegas. However, the producers demand $50,000 from her and Elvira does not have the money. Out of the blue, she receives a telegram informing that her great-aunt Morgana died and she has an inheritance to receive. Elvira drives to the uptight town of Falwell, Massachusetts, where her convertible breaks down. While repairing her convertible... Elvira inherits an archaic mansion, a recipe book and a poodle. Her great-uncle Vincent Talbot proposes to buy her book, but the poodle hides it in the sofa. Meanwhile, the Conservative Council of Falwell feels uncomfortable with Elvira's clothes and behaviour and does not let her find a job. But cinema owner Bob Redding and the local teenagers help Elvira. When she decides to cook a dinner to impress Bob, she uses Morgana's recipe and finds that it is indeed a spell book that belonged to her mother, Divana. Further, Morgana has protected her from the warlock Vincent that wants the book to take over the world and destroy Elvira, who is a powerful witch. When Elvira refuses to sell the book to Vincent, he convinces the council that she is a witch that must be burned at the stake. How will Elvira stop the evil warlock Vincent? So Elvira is probably one of your favorite females of horror, of the horror genre. And um, you've been a fan of her for quite a long time. So when did you first become acquainted with The Mistress of the Dark? And when was the first time you saw this movie? And if you can give a bit of uh, background about that. Well, yeah, Elvira has been with me for a long time. Not in a physical sense, I I should (laughs) uh, stress. I think pretty much during the 80s. And you heard a lot about the movie Macabre series that uh, she presented and I think she was a staple of the horror publications of the time. So even though we didn't get to see a lot of Elvira over this side of the pond, she was quite a known figure from knowing what she was doing in the US. And I saw Elvira, Mrs. of the Dark. I think it was... I didn't see it at the, at the movies. I saw it on VHS. I think it came out pretty soon after it was released in the cinemas anyway. And I fell in love with the movie straight away. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It was one of those movies that me and my sister rented on quite a few occasions. There were certain titles that we would rent fairly regularly. And Elvira, Mistress of the Dark was one of them. Just because it appealed to her our sense of humour and the fact that, yes, it's kind of a horror movie, 
but it's not that scary. It's as cheesy as the movies Elvira used to introduce as part of the movie Macabre. There is a there is a nod to her horror hostess status as well at the start of the movie. One of the defining moments of my existence was sitting in a departure lounge in Manchester, waiting to take a flight and getting really annoyed because I had to miss Horrorcon because I was flying out to a conference. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, flying out to Boston for a conference. First world problems. But I was still really annoyed that I was going to miss Horrorcon in Sheffield because Elvira was going to be there. And I was sitting there waiting for the flight. And then all of a sudden I got a phone call from Horrorcon and some of my friends that were there had got Elvira to phone me up in the departure lounge and I cannot tell you how happy I was at that moment in time. I was on the point of actually going round people in the departure lounge who didn't know me just said just to say, guess who's just phoned me up? <laughs> I'm so glad you've told that story. It is one of my favourite Horrorcon stories. I wasn't there either, so that was the year we both missed, which is just really sad. But um, I'm fairly new to Elvira. This movie I saw last year for the first time and instantaneously fell in love with it. It's a campy B-movie, very like cheesy 80s vibe, but it's so much fun and it's just got that rewatchability. I think it's like, as you say, it is a horror movie, but it's horror light. It's like a feel-good horror movie, and I think it's one that you can put on time and time again and never get bored of it. Elvira, as the main star of it, she's um, so endearing. Like, yeah, she's very sexy and vampy. There's lots of innuendos in this film. Um, but she kind of kind of toes the line between, you know, being that kind of sex symbol, but at the same time, she's very switched on and self-aware. And um, she doesn't take any crap from um, these, like, males that, like, perv on her and things like that. So, yeah, I think she it's kind of like she is... A feminist icon of the genre that's that's the vibe i get from it like she she's so self-aware she knows exactly what she's doing and she's yeah it looks why she's got that very like morticia adams vibe about her as well so yeah this this movie is a ton of fun and i think if you're just looking for something really light-hearted from the horror genre this, this is just the perfect film yeah absolutely she's definitely got her own agency she knows what she wants and I don't think she's particularly manipulative, but she's going to take no shit from the guys who are trying to exploit her looks and, uh, well, and a rather large chest, it has to be said. <laughs> but there's there's never any point during this movie where you feel that she isn't in control of her destiny. She's not going to take any crap from the guys around her. And it's got that kind of classic sort of witchcraft tale you know where a small town of people who are very suspicious of the occult gather together to take against the outsider but there are always some good people around who will see through all of that and find out who the real bad guy is the town council is full of very pious very moralistic people the the main one is called uh, chastity pariah so you kind of know what level this movie is going for. And the opening exchange, like Elvira turns up and a car breaks down and she gets out of it. And Chastity Pereira is there and she's kind of got these big curlers in there and she's dressed very frumpily. And Elvira's got this low-cut dress. And Chastity Pereira says something like, oh, well, I never. And Elvira says, well, you never will either with them soup cans on your head. 
And that's the sort of level. <laughs> if you if you don't laugh at that joke in the movie, then you're not going to find a lot of joy in the rest of it because that's where the humour's pitched at. There's a lot of double entendres in this movie as well. Yeah, it's such a witty film and you just can't help but enjoy it. And it's very much like a spoof as well, isn't it? It's like spoofing on um, Roger Corman because yeah. it, it was released by New World Pictures, which is owned by Roger Corman. So there's lots of references here and there to these old B-movies. There's a scene where um, Elvira hosts one of her movie nights in the local cinema uh, for the teenagers. She shows uh, the Killer Tomatoes movie, and then there's like a parody of Flashdance and Carrie rolled into one as well. So that's the kind of uh, level it's going for. You're going to watch it, and if you're a big horror fan, you'll like notice all these different references. So one of my favourite facts about this movie was that Brad Pitt auditioned uh, to play one of the teenagers. Uh, this is obviously way before he was um, the big name he is today. And Cassandra Peterson thought he was way too cute to be in it because she thought there's no way Elvira would be interested in Bob if Brad Pitt was one of the teenagers who was lusting after her. And allegedly on the casting notes for his audition, she wrote next to his name, Yum Yum. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just great. Yeah, so you can tell that she's just so much fun um, as a person as well. Just like she like, takes everything kind of very lightheartedly. And then Brad Pitt did go on to purchase her gothic-styled mansion in L.A. There you go. It's, I mean, yeah, I agree, actually, because Bob is kind of cast as the town hunk, but if you've got Brad Pitt there, and this is not casting any sort of slight on Daniel Green, who plays Bob, but against Brad Pitt, every every guy on the planet is going to come off badly, pretty much, I think. So <laughs> I don't think... Daniel Green is like good at playing the sort of very innocent, slightly dense Bob. Daniel Green was in a movie called Hands of Steel. It was an Italian action post-apocalyptic thing. So I was quite surprised to see him in this when he turned up in this because he'd kind of been in the sort of Italian sort of Mad Max ripoffs. And weirdly enough, I'd read something after Hands of Steel came out. That there was a there was an article saying that he died after Hands of Steel, and I thought, oh, that's a that's a terrible shame. And then when he turned up in Elvira, I thought, well, that's like the most miraculous resurrection since Lazarus, or he didn't actually die after Hands of Steel. So it was a very bizarre period of the 80s where I'd spent quite a lot of it thinking, oh, poor old Daniel Green after like dying after making Hands of Steel. No, he, he was he's still alive, and, and he turned up in the documentary on the Blu-ray as well, so... <laughs> he's still around so i mean i'm glad he is but it was a little bit of a shock where i was thinking is that daniel green in this movie i thought he was dead <laughs> god that is so weird like i'd never heard that story but yeah but it was a relief to see him in this and obviously he gets to pair up with elvira i love the romance between them in this it's very sweet as I say it's got their like uh, double entendre all the time in it but it's it's just they're, they're quite like opposites but it just kind of works and it's like you kind of root for them to get together so and he's like super supportive of her and it's like he doesn't judge a book by its cover he likes her for her and I, I as I say I, like, I really like that element of it and I like that um the idea that she could have like a stable relationship rather than have like um you know just be kind of this sex symbol that everyone's lusting after that you know there's more to her than just that yeah and i mean and she does make a couple of jokes about her past in terms of relationships but it's all very very light-hearted and 
you're, you're right. It is very sweet, the relationship between Elvira and Bob. It doesn't kind of go down the route where he's just after her because she's stunning. I mean, he actually sees the good in her. And it's quite funny when they're sitting on either end of the sofa where Elvira's kind of the one that's in control and he's sitting there looking really, really nervous about it. So it kind of flips the expectations of what you have in a relationship where, you know, the female is the dominant one and she's the one who's making all the moves and it's the guy who is kind of thinking, oh, you know, I'm not sure that I should be in this situation. I need to, you know, maybe I need to get out. Maybe it's moving too fast. If you're thinking about a movie where, you know, the central relationship isn't that heavy, it's all played in a very, very light-hearted way. The support characters are really good as well and some quite familiar faces within support. I do like the very throwaway line in the council meeting where one of the uh, guys is talking about the teenagers in the high school and he's going on about how he does a regular tour of the boys' lavatory and it's just thrown <laughs> away. The line, it's just like it's just left there to sort of just hang and you just kind of think, did he just say that? And then they've just moved on to something else. So, so Elvira, Mr. Zadak is full of things like that where they'll say something that on the face of it is just very matter of fact. But when you actually go back and unpick the line, you think, that's that's quite dark. Yeah, it's such a great movie. Um, another thing I found interesting about it was Cassandra Peterson had actually wanted Tim Burton to direct this movie, and I definitely think it has that Tim Burton flair to it in terms of its style, um, its aesthetic and everything. But Tim Burton was actually working on Beetlejuice at the time, so he wasn't able to commit to this project, which is a shame in some ways, but then this, this movie is brilliant anyway, so I don't think it really matters um, in the long run that it wasn't a Tim Burton movie, but I can see how he would have directed this pretty well. Yeah, it's Tim Burton-esque. You could even say that, I mean, if you watched it, that um, you'd think that if you'd seen it and not known who the director is, then some sequences you'd kind of think, this could possibly be Tim Burton. Tim Burton could have some hand in this. It's got that style about it where it's quite gothic, but it's also quite playful at the same time. Yeah, it's it's kind of like got that Adam's Family vibe to it as well, but in a more um, like adults-esque way. I really enjoyed this film and I wish I'd come to it sooner, but I'm so glad now. It's like definitely one of my favourite horror comedies um, and I would definitely be rewatching it so many times, especially when I need like a good fun horror pick-me-up. Yeah, and Gonk is one of the greatest characters, the poodle Gonk, who, who has supernatural powers of its own it turns out gonk is one of the greatest characters in horror cinema as far as i'm concerned yeah of course we've got to have some love for the pets on this and this is one that doesn't use that horrible trope yeah gonk is a very smart dog really great sidekick for elvira um has a great look as well especially like a punk bit of a punk rock look about about him so yeah, another interesting thing about this was uh, as much as we are um sort of loving this movie it was nominated for Worst Picture at the Hastings Bad Cinema Society's 11th Stinkers Bad Movie Awards in 1988. I mean, this is not a bad movie at all. This movie is so self-aware. It knows exactly what it's doing. It knows exactly what it wants to be. It's confident. There's, like, no kind of airs and graces about it. So I don't know how anyone can nominate this as a bad movie. Yeah, to the people on that particular committee who decided that it was worthy of a nomination for a bad film award i mean 
excuse my language, but how fucking dare you with this movie? I'm sorry. <laughs> this is such a good time. Yes, it's kind of loose and it's like a bit improv as well. And it, if you watch the documentary, I think Cassandra Peterson and one of the writers were looking for that kind of improvisational quality because that was her background. Whereas they had a third writer who was trying to get a bit more structure in there. And so it was a marriage between them just saying, oh, this will work. Let's try doing this. Oh, what if this happened? And then you got the third writer in there saying, well, you know, we've got to put it into some sort of structure because, you know, we can't have all these random things happening. I think it's quite a good balance between the inventive and it has a natural story structure as well. So, I mean, there are things that just come out of nowhere, but they just seem naturalistic anyway in the plot. You know, if something weird happens... It's just this movie's MO. Lots of weird things happen in this movie. And they seem to want to throw in all sorts of jokes. It does feel like a movie where if they thought of something on set, they would try it and if it worked, they'd keep it in. But that's not a bad thing because it does kind of wrong foot you on occasion and you kind of don't know what's coming next as well. So I'm a massive fan of this movie. Uh, Just everything about it is joyous. Whether it's the which burning sequence which is utterly utterly ridiculous because there's a flashback where elvira sees herself as a baby now you have to see baby elvira because it's it's <laughs> such a brilliant sight gag it cracks me up every single time when it flashes back to that and the whole thing about the Falwell morality club annual picnic which is like the biggest downer of an event until they accidentally eat something that's been laced with this spell and it, it, it turns them into basically turns them into sex maniacs which is also i mean it's all done in a very tasteful way but it's again it, that's absolutely hilarious because it means that all these people that have spent most of the movie playing very uptight characters just get to go crazy in this one sequence yeah there's so many great moments in it and it's just great moment after great moment i think yeah, what you were saying about um, how they impro- improvised on set as well. I think that's great because going off script sometimes can just, you know, make that movie, like enhance that movie a bit more. So uh, that's definitely really interesting. And I'd love to see the documentary on this. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to catch that at some point. IMDb have given it 6.6 out of 10. I think it deserves lots more love than that. That's okay. And Rotten Tomatoes, 65% audience score. Again, nope, I would give it way higher than that. I'd probably put it near enough 100% because I love this film. As I'm new to it, but I'm glad I've discovered it and I had, I've had, i had a good time every time I've watched it. I like the fact that it's very nearly 666 in both camps because like 6.6 on IMDb 65% and they've got 66.6% on Rotten Tomatoes so I kind of like the fact that it's sitting there it's not what I would give it in terms of score I would obviously rate it quite a bit higher but I guess again I think as with Jacob's Wife I mean this is a less extreme example of it in terms of tone because it sets out to be fairly daft from the get-go this but i think people if they looked at elvira's credentials as a horror host maybe people came in this thinking it would be slightly more edgy than it is and i don't think that's a bad thing that it isn't it's a little bit risque in places but it's not gonna offend anybody i mean there's one joke about 
the F word. I mean, they don't even say the F word in this movie. The way that they get the F word in this movie is really inventive. It's to do with a sign that's hanging up outside the cinema about the forthcoming attractions. And it ends up where the the word is very briefly glimpsed on this billboard outside the cinema. But I don't think anybody... I, I can't think anybody would watch Elvira and be upset about it in any way. No, it's so tongue-in-cheek and playful. And Elvira, as a star in this, she's so charming and charismatic. She's got a great screen presence. You just feel on her side in this. So, yeah, there's a lot to love about Elvira. If you love horror comedy, if you love references um, and, you know, playful kind of takes on different tropes and stuff, this is definitely one for you. So um, we highly recommend it. And if you want to celebrate Darren's birthday with us, go and watch Elvira and have a drink for him. Yeah, if you want to do that, thank you very much. And to Elvira, thank you ever so much for giving me a call in Manchester Airport Departure Lounge. I will never, ever forget it. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 37 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed what you heard, you can follow us on all our social media platforms. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast you have any requests for any movies you'd like us to cover please let us know in the comments so what are we going to do next week well we've had the birthday episode so let's get back to a thread that we've done a couple of times in the past but i thought we needed to get back to it. it's our face-off series in which we feature the work of a specific actor or actress and we take two movies of theirs and compare and contrast them so Who are we going to be focusing on next time? Okay, well, I hope you're all ready to have the time of your lives with us next week because we are going to be focusing on two works of the legendary Patrick Swayze. We have Dirty Dancing, which is probably one of his most iconic roles. And then we also have another brilliant movie of his, which is Point Break from 1991. Should be a good face off this one because two very, very contrasting movies with two very contrasting styles and very contrasting directors as well. So can't wait for that. Until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.